So one of the fascinating aspects of this book is you really do some deep diving into facts, which is, you know, it's unfortunate we live in a world in which facts are combated with opinions on facts. But we'll talk about facts just in general. And, and some of the things you hit at are um, often common tropes that white people have towards persons of color. So one specific example, and talk about the chapter, talk about cultural uh, deprivation of communities of color. Um, it's this trope often used by white people to say that persons of color uh, not only don't have the same opportunities as white people, such as education, but these communities of color don't value these things as much as white people. Um, someone who holds this view might say, um, if you just work hard, you'll, you'll, you'll make it. Jeff, I wonder if you'll, you'll pick apart this belief and, and what's at the heart of it. Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter, so each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. I'm Edna Hill, your podcast host. This year we're celebrating our eighth year on the podcast, bringing you better interviews with your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to an island unto yourself. Get online and share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We also want to give a special shout out to some of our listener supporters, including Caroline Bell, Cindy Folden-Lord, Trip Hawthorne, Bill Johnson, Carson Fushi, Ralph Stocks, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. Thanks for listening. Little Rock, Arkansas, Pittsburgh, PA, Ashburn, Virginia, West Yellowstone, Montana, Tamworth, Australia, and Hamilton, Canada. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. And before we move on, we need to give a word of gratitude to our annual sponsors, including Zondervan Media Company, A Model Ministry, and Gardner Webb University School of Divinity. Finally, and I promise this is it, don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platform. This is worth putting off the podcast interview for 30 more seconds to hear about one of our annual sponsors, Zondervan Media Group. Explore the depth and beauty of scripture with the NRSV updated edition. With provisions based on new contextual evidence, historical insights, and linguistic precision, this updated edition of the NRSV delivers a translation of scripture based on meticulous care for accuracy and readability. Learn more about new editions of the NRSV UE from Zondervan at nrsvuebible.com. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Dr. Robert Chow Romero and Dr. Jeff Leo. Robert is the associate professor in the UCLA Department of Chicano, Central American, and Asian American Studies, as well as the director of Brown Church Initiative. Jeff is the National Director for Theological Formation for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship and Adjunct Professor of Christian Ethics at Fuller Theological Seminary. Robert and Jeff, thank you for joining the conversation. Thanks for having awesome us. Awesome to be here. Jeff, uh, you are also the, the co-founder of the Asian American Christian Collaborative. What is it and what kind of work do you do? Yeah, so we founded the Asian American Christian Collaborative back in 2020. I since have uh, stepped back from leadership in the organiza organization, but um, it was initiated after a very difficult encounter with a fellow church member here in Southern California. And I was looking for some camaraderie, so I reached out to a couple friends, and uh, we we said, you know what, um, I think we're we're done with this. We're we're going to need to do something, and so we decided to organize a statement, which um, a, a group of us co-authored together. And the statement reached 10,000 signatures really fast. And um, Robert was one of those signatories. And um, the organization was birthed from there. It, it's really at that point that I began to move back from there. But uh, today, the organization uh, is very busy, very fruitful, creating resources for Asian American Christians across the across the country to use in their congregations, in their activism. Um, they host a lot of conversations. They're pushing conversations forward. They're doing a lot of good work, and uh, I'm a I'm a I'm a supporter of uh, of their work. 
Robert, you know, I kind of cut short on your credentials because we can ask a, also add, you know, lawyer to to the mix of, of the many things <laughs> that you are. But you know, we last had you on um, Brown Church. Uh, you had just released that book in 2020. Um, I know I feel like 20 years older uh, since since that year we interviewed you. But uh, tell us about uh, the Brown Church initiative. Absolutely. So <clears throat> when Brown Church, the book came out when I was last year, I didn't know how it was going to turn out. <laughs> yeah, I'd written, I had written this book by God's grace that was telling this little known history, forgotten history of 500 years of Latino, Latina Christian justice in Latin America and in the U.S. And it came out, you know, in the very difficult George Floyd moment when so many young, especially young Latinos and Latinas were asking questions about identity and how can I be a Christian when I'm seeing this really terrible face of some Christians who are really opposed to issues of racial justice and equity. And I was pleasantly surprised by God's grace that Brown Church it struck a nerve, struck a nerve and gave an identity to, to many people the Brown Church Initiative was something that in the wake of the Brown Church book, my friends at Fuller said, hey, you know, would you like to work together on something? <laughs> and so I, I spoke with my friends there and the Brown Church Initiative basically is seeking to embody the message of Brown Church through research on the Latino church, through trainings, through certificate programs and that kind of thing. So basically it's become kind of a, a partnership with Fuller around issues of, of education and training and research. So you, uh, you have a new book, um, Christianity and Critical Race Theory. This book invites readers into a faithful and constructive conversation. You wrote, CRT has given me the language to describe my own racialized experience and those of many people I know. Over the years, I've come to one basic conclusion. CRT is helpful. Before we get to kind of really thoroughly defining, um, you know, critical race theory and the angle y'all took, I, I wonder if you'll each walk us through the personal aspects uh, of this book as it comes to critical race theory. And Jeff, we'll start with you. Yeah, the the, the personal nature of it was um, I met Robert. <laughs> um, I was a PhD student. And I had just begun that segment of the academic journey where um, I had the privilege of teaching. And that's the point at which I met Robert. And uh, he introduced me because I was pursuing ethnic studies. I wanted to write a dissertation on race because my children are mixed race. I had been, because of InterVarsity's influence, working on thinking about racial reconciliation. Um, I was a pastor at the time, so I was looking for ways to enact something new because I saw that so many things weren't working. And I got to remind your listeners, this is 2009, 2010. This is long before CRT made it into the news in any meaningful way. And um, we were just working on racial reconciliation and multi-ethnicity, as we used to call it back then. So in looking for new tools, I found a really early resonance with the theology that I was working with and with critical race theory, which we can talk about in a minute. But um, I saw so much promise and helpfulness in it before the news got a hold of it and turned it to what the conversation is now. And um, I started enacting some of the things that I was learning, some of the ways of uh, asking questions of systems and structures and thinking about solutions. And um, I got to tell you, I, I've seen some really important, fruitful things happen because of God's faithfulness, because of, uh, because of my inquiry into CRT. Robert, what about you, the personal nature of this book? I first came across CRT, you know, as a, well, actually, even as a law student many years ago, when I was a student of Ian Haney Lopez. I never attended his class, but he's one of the founders of CRT, like I just ditched class a lot, but uh, that was my first exposure, but when I first time I, I really got into it was teaching teaching a legal studies class at UCLA, uh, a grad class, probably about a decade ago, maybe more now. And I, I it gave me language as I taught that to grad students. We talked about this thing called microaggressions, 
microaggressions. Microaggressions are when um, people of color experience these, what are sometimes little and sometimes big snubs, racialized snubs, right, basically. And and they, they really, they take their toll, right? Because they make you feel like you're outside the gate of acceptance in the Christian community, to quote a Latino theologian. It makes you feel like you're outside the gate of acceptance within the broader university structures and social structures. And I began to share experiences with my students using this framework. They shared theirs. Um, and CRT gave language, right? I mean, I'll give you one example of a micro microaggression. I remember going to, and this is a kind of a, a lighter one. I can tell you serious ones too, but going to um, Home Depot about eight years ago, we were going to remodel our kitchen. And a good friend of ours, big, tall, white guy, good friend, Bob Combs. Oh, sorry, Bob. I just mentioned your name. <laughs> he was helping us to remodel our kitchen, which I was so grateful. We go to Home Depot and um, we buy all these supplies, right, to fix our kitchen. And I, I, I give the, <laughs> the cashier, I give her my credit card to pay for it, the materials. And she, after ringing all the materials up, gives a credit card to my friend, Bob. Because <laughs> she thought that Bob, you know, was the white contractor and I was, I was the Mexican helper, right? Those are kind of like racial microaggressions, right? And when you experience them over time, they really make a big impact and they, they really make you feel excluded. And I can give other examples and more serious ones. Indeed, I do in the book. Um, but as I began to sort of explore the language of CRT, it gave me a common language with my students. And we just, we could sit there for hours just talking about the different microaggressions we felt. And then moving from there, CRT gives language to describe kind of some the structural larger things involved in systems and structures that we as as people of color experience in education in church in healthcare right it, it gives us a broader language and so that's sort of my, my, my personal kind of experience with it it gave me a language to describe my whole life actually yeah so you know for two people who, who've written a book and taught on the subject, it seems like a silly question asked. Um, however, CRT has, has been used as a distraction mechanism by conservatives. Um, so, so Robert, can you define for us um, what you mean by critical race theory? So critical race theory, very specifically, um, it was a, a movement a research academic movement within the law that began in the 1970s. And in the 1970s and 80s, um, many, many people of color went through their law school experience of three years, never hearing anything about the experience of race in US law, in US legal history, nothing. So you could go your whole three years and never study Brown v. Board of Education, right? In your law school career, you could go your whole law school career and never learn about Jim Crow segregation and its relationship to constitutional law, that kind of thing, right? So in the 70s and 80s, um, you had legal um, scholars who said, um, wait a minute, this isn't right, right? We need to sort of, uh, like Derek Bell and others, who they got together, had a historic meeting, and they said, what can we do to foster the understanding, the research and, and teaching related to the role of law. I'm, ra I'm rather, I'm sorry, let me say that again. Derek Bell and others got together in a historic meeting to discuss how they might implement a research and academic agenda examining the role of race as a legal concept in US law and history. That's how CRT began, right? Very specifically, and then from there, it branched out to, um, you know, CRT in education, CRT in history, and these different fields. But CRT, it's a very specific academic um, movement. Um, and but from there, it, it kind of got broad brushed on all sides, right? To just re either represent CRT is this 
anything dealing with justice and the law. And some people do that. Even supporters of supporters of CRT do that. They broad brush it. Anything with, with race where they say, oh, I'm a CRT scholar, right? Or on the right, anything that deals with racial justice, oh, that's a boogeyman. So that's CRT. Um, Jeff can also really, I think, speak to um, the specific sort of politicization of CRT um, better than I can. Yeah, Jeff, if you'll take us there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, CRT has been weaponized, right? So it, it's now the blanket word for everything that folks don't like. Um, and it didn't just evolve into that. There was a there's deliberate, concerted, very skillful effort to make it a term like that. And the the person who uh, was kind of proud and 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 uh, talked about it openly, talked about that effort openly, uh, was a conservative activist by the name of Christopher Rufo. He posted on Twitter that we have succeeded. We've filled this phrase, critical race theory, with all the things that um, people will now associate with what they don't like. So you know, the, the way that we now talk about whether we can say that slavery was bad in the public schools. That's not, I mean, you heard what Robert just explained in terms of what critical race theory is and its origins. That's not what we're now talking about in the news. So this evolution or this, you know, deliberate kind of misrepresentation of what critical race theory is, um, frankly, it, it's not helpful. Um, and, and, and I have no interest in defending the term critical race theory, especially not in political discourse, but it's really the tools that we're using in order to highlight injustices and push for a more um, representative church in the world. I mean, th these are the things that are important to us. Exactly. Like, it's like, I could take the term CRT or not. Like, that's not, it's helpful, like I said, but I'm not going to die on the hill for it, right? Like, um, I think what's really at issue is race and ethnic cultural issues in the church and whether or not we are willing to address those so that the church can be healthy and beautiful and what Jesus wants, and so that the church can have a healthy testimony to the world. Because those who oppose CRT most vehemently and most ignorantly, to be honest, they want to say their underlying assumption is that racism doesn't exist on a meaningful scale in the United States anymore. So therefore, civil rights initiatives are not necessary. Therefore, everything's fine with education and healthcare and voting rights and all those things. Um, but my particular attention is to the church. So I'm meeting, I meet all the time, many, many students. I dare say there are millions of young adults, Latino, African-American, Asian-American, and white for that matter, who are walking away from the church because some people in the church, not everybody, is Cling, cling, are clinging to this expression of Christianity as American civil religion that promotes the status quo and that denies that racism is a reality. And millions of young people across the U.S. are like, I'm sick of it, right? And so for me, I want to engage in this conversation so that the church can continue to be relevant right, to the social needs, the, the deep social needs and so that people can come to know Jesus. Robert, I'm, I'm not sure the white church, um, to my recollection, has ever been charged with uh, thinking and ignorance before. So, or, or do we want to do like a multi-volume podcast series on the white church's <laughs> ignorance? So, so let's, let's go right there, which is the critical focus of this book. For you, critical race theory is interwoven with biblical narratives and has tremendous theological implications. Not just this idea of, you know, that not this is just this social or philosophical or legal idea detached from our faith. And Jeff, I wonder if you'll you'll first take us there as as to why CRT for you all is is woven into biblical narratives and has these theological implications. Yeah, so the way that we re, uh, that we arranged the book is through a a, a pretty commonly uh, it's a recognizable theological uh, narrative or motif, and and we moved from creation through fall to redemption to consummation and and we know that there's other ways of kind of the the shorthand for the entire biblical narrative but we chose this very familiar four act kind of uh, uh, unfolding drama um because we saw a lot of resonances between what we understand as critical race theory and these four terms so um in creation robert's written a beautiful chapter on 
um, the glory and honor of the nations, which we get from Isaiah 60 and Revelation 21, and the assertion in critical race theory that every community has a kind of cultural wealth. Um, so if you look at Isaiah, 20, uh, Isaiah 60 and Revelation 21, it talks about the kings of the earth bringing in their cultural treasures, in, in the case of Revelation 21, into the new heavens and the new earth, God sanctifying those things and using them to adorn his temple. Critical race theory says something um, related to that, that every culture has wealth to bring to the table and to use in their community's survival, etc. So that's the creation aspect. In the fall chapter, we've sought to re-narrate, um, not really re-narrate, to, to highlight different ways of talking about sin, the sin of racism, um, because there's denominations that talk about opposing race, racism in all its forms. Well, we want to talk about how the biblical narrative on sin informs the way we understand racism and not the other way around. Um, and then in, in the redemption chapter, uh, Robert talks about critical race theory in institutions and ways in which people are fighting for justice and the ways that those resonate with um, the, the scripture's call to justice. And then lastly, in the consummation, we talk about uh, what Martin, Martin Luther King Jr. talked about as uh, the beloved community and critical race theory's vision for beloved community, but ultimately its inability to articulate the same kind of compelling vision for a, a new heavens and new earth community that the Bible does for us. Robert, you take this a little deeper. You, you all have written this book because you believe that faith and constructive engagement with CRT illuminates significant overlaps with the Christian theology. And, and, and as um, Jeff was kind of alluding to there, you, you have organized the chapters of the book around the biblical narrative of creation, fall, redemption, and, and consummation. Before we get to the contents of the book itself, why do you think that so many white Christians are scared of this conversation and see it as as detached from their faith tradition? I think I think guilt and shame and identity. So let, let me explain. It is a, a true statement that Sometimes when CRT is expressed in writings or in classes, it makes white people feel really guilty, right? So there's an instant shame wall that says, oh my gosh, you're saying, you're telling me that to be white, I should feel guilty because my people have done all these terrible things, right? And I kind of get that. <laughs> no one likes to feel shame, right? I think um, instead of, uh, uh, you know, maybe like, framing it in a different way and saying, well, historically, there was this legal concept called whiteness, right? It was actually a legal term, right? And according to this legal term, if someone was legally defined as white, you were fully defined as a human being. And if someone was legally defined as black, again, legal terms, right? Not just ethnic descriptors, legal terms, you were dehumanized. If you were legally defined as white, you, your kids could go to school where they wanted to go. You could get any job. You could go to the hospital, et cetera. But I think that the the way that CRT sometimes is is framed, there needs to be a unique kind of or, or a, an appropriate sort of discussion so that people don't put their shame walls up right away. Right. That's one thing. Number two, um, CRT gets to deep deep issues of identity. Right. So for, for many white Christians, to be a Christian is to be an American, and to be an American, kind of like in the days of Rome, is to be a proud Roman citizen or a proud U.S. citizen. And that means that the United States has always been this shining city on a hill, maybe had a few problems here or there, but for the most part, you know, we are the greatest nation on earth kind of thing, right? Um nationalism, right? Or patriotism in, in, in a lesser form. So for me to say, well, actually, let me describe to you the way that I experienced racism last week at the supermarket or growing up as a kid in education, or let me tell you the stories that my students tell me every single week at UCLA about the experiences of racism on a personal and structural level. That disrupts, it makes them feel uncomfortable, makes some people feel uncomfortable because it, it, it's poking at that identity, which conflates Christianity with America, American exceptionalism. 
And I think, so for those reasons, I think that's why it kind of jars people. And I'll just say one more thing. Our model in drawing, <laughs> the parallels between CRT and scripture, it's from the Bible. <laughs> just like John wrote the, you know, you know, in the beginning was the logos, right? He was drawing from a concept in Greek culture and society there to point people to Jesus. Just like Paul, right, in Acts, in his speech to the Areopagus, cites, right, Greek poets and philosophers. That's our approach here, but we're using CRT, and it's 2,000 years later. Yeah, I, I got to add to that a little bit. I, I think, you know, the question is a really good one uh, about why is it that uh, especially white Christians struggle so much with these conversations? I mean, I, I want to be... At the end of the day, Robert and I are both pastors, and we care about our audience who's listening to us and who's reading our, our work. Um, we know, as pastors, that guilt is not what motivates people, at least not in any meaningful, enduring sense. And frankly, critical race theorists know that too. They're not interested in the guilt, but we recognize how difficult it is for folks who's Maybe family members have fought and died and bled for this country. Um, to hear that the things that their family has stood for are, quote unquote, under attack. So, um, for example, we want to really desperately believe that the country that we live in is fair and just. Because um, our family fought for that. You know, people people of all uh, races and creeds have fought for that in this country. So, um to be told that the country is not inherently fair and just, but that racism is an ordinary feature that's baked right into the founding documents of our country. That's a really hard piece of news to hear because on the one hand, it challenges the narrative that we have, but on the other hand, it seems to play with the definitions that we have become accustomed to. We thought that racism was something that happened in my private heart. And God knows the motivations of my heart. How can you tell me that I'm a racist when I have positive feelings toward other people? But what critical race theory is trying to say is actually quite different than that, that racism isn't just embedded in the human heart, but rather embedded in the structures of society. So maybe it has nothing to do with your good intentions. Maybe it has to do with the impact that it's having across the country, the very disparate unequal impact that it's having on black and brown communities across the country. So that's the kind of shift in conversation that has been so difficult to achieve and which we're trying to do with the book. We are pausing to tell you about one of our collaborative annual sponsors, A Model Ministry. Are you a church leader who's committed to keeping children safe? If so, then A Model Ministry is for you. We are a registered nonprofit organization specializing in safety education, policy writing, and risk assessment to mitigate child abuse in ministry organizations. We understand that child safety is a top priority for churches, and we're here to create a safe and nurturing environment for all children. Our founders can provide the resources and support needed to implement effective child safety policies and procedures. Visit amodelministry.com to learn more about our services and how we can help keep children safe. Since 2016, CBF has brought you episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. So one of the fascinating aspects of this book is you really do some deep diving into facts, which is, <laughs> you know, it's unfortunate we live in a world in which facts are combated with opinions on facts, but we'll talk about facts just in general. And, and some of the things you hit at are... Um, often common tropes that white people have towards persons of color. So one specific example, and talk about the chapter, talk about cultural uh, deprivation of communities of color. Um, 
it's this trope often used by white people to say that persons of color uh, not only don't have the same opportunities as white people, such as education, but these communities of color don't value these things as much as white people. Um, someone who holds this view might say, um, if you just work hard, you'll, you'll, you'll make it. Jeff, I wonder if you'll, you'll pick apart this belief and, and what's at the heart of it. Yeah, I mean, this is Robert's chapter, but I, I can I can get started here. Um, so I, I think that uh, the narrative goes something like this, you know, um, this community, that community, they just don't value, let's say, education. OK, and, and now I'll get personal, right, because Asian Americans are held up, have traditionally been held up as the counterexample to that. Well, look at Asian Americans. Look at their high academic attainment. Now, why can't everyone do that? Okay, so this is what in critical race theory we call deficit thinking. You take a community and you paint them with the deficits that you perceive that they have. Now, hang with me here. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder, isn't it? But so is deficit. So if I'm using my own way of looking at someone, I'm using my own values, the things that I care about, that the things that I think are important, and I'm saying, well, you don't seem to care about that. Never mind whether I'm accurate in my assessment. Never mind whether I have enough data or relationships to make that assessment. I paint somebody with a deficit. They lack this. This community has it. This community don't. Uh, doesn't I'm making all these decisions, and now I'm making these evaluations about entire communities of people, and on top of that, I can begin to make policy decisions based on those judgments. And that's what, in so many places, the ed um, education policymakers have done. Um, so that's kind of how the story goes for me. But I'd, I'd love for Robert to talk about more uh, of that cultural deprivation. Yeah, I, th I think maybe I'll flesh out a little bit more Revelation 21 verses 26 and 27. Right? Um, some of my life verses there. In Revelation 21, 26, John is describing, okay, when Jesus comes back, Jesus comes back, Jesus makes all things new. What's that going to be like, right? And in verse 26, he says, the glory and honor of the nations will be brought into the new Jerusalem forever. The, the doxa, the doxa, the glory, the cultural treasure and wealth of, of every single ethnic group of the world will be brought into the new Jerusalem forever. Right? Verse 27 says... <clears throat> But nothing that causes sin, to paraphrase, nothing impure and nothing that causes sin will be brought in. You put those two together and you realize every ethnic group of the world <laughs> that has ever existed and that exists has doxa and has sin that's not going to make it in. Right? And unfortunately, in U.S. history, this legal concept of whiteness was based upon the premise that only some people who meet the legal qualifications of what it means to be white have doxa. And those who do not meet that legal definition of white, they either have no doxa or a little bit, right? The fact of the matter is though, we all have both, right? And it's all valuable to God. So when I hear, when I grew up, I grew up hearing, I remember like being in, in high school and Kind of like bragging to the, the the white girl that I had a crush on in high school. I want to be a lawyer. You know what she told me? I would never hire a Mexican lawyer. <laughs> in other words, Mexicans, this group of people that I call that she calls Mexicans, don't have doxa. They're not smart enough. They're culturally deficient, right? Or when a certain politician said, "Yeah, Mexicans are rapists, drug dealers, etc." And I suppose some are good people. What is he saying? The vast majority of, of Mexicans, and by that he means all Latinos, don't have doxa, but a few, maybe a few do. <laughs> and so that's, it's really important in, in, this, in this conversation to flesh that out, right? Um, and that's the debate that we're having, right? And I'll just say one last thing. I meet so many incredibly talented, gifted people in ministry in parachurch ministries and church ministries, and their doxa is not let in. Sometimes it's not it's not uh, intentional, but implicitly or, or directly or indirectly, they're told, "If you want to succeed in this institution, think like us. 
because dokso involves not just like burritos and tacos and like mariachi music, right? <laughs> dokso involves the unique God-given perspective that God has given us through that cultural treasure to understand the Bible, to understand the needs and the problems of the church and society, right? That is for the benefit of the whole body of Christ. But all too often, we are told, leave your doxa at the door. And eventually, we get tired of that and we walk away. There's a, a critical term from the book, uh, community cultural wealth. Uh, Jeff, what do you mean by that? And, and what are its implications for, for CRT? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'll put this in, in the form of, of, of a story. I, I, I remember as a kid, my parents telling me over and over again, Jeff, you are Taiwanese. You are Taiwanese. And that means a certain set of things. Um, I remember also that when I was, um, you know, a part of certain spaces uh, in which I was trying to exercise Christian leadership as a Taiwanese person, because I had been instilled with this value of being Taiwanese, the distinctives that I bring to the table because God has uh, seen fit to bring my family through uh, migration from Taiwan to the United States, like all the things that come with that. I remember in trying to lead in that space, um, being told pretty explicitly, we don't need that here. We don't need the consensus decision-making. We don't need the deference. We don't need the filial piety. We don't need the honoring of elders. We, we have other priorities here. So my community, uh, the Taiwanese-American community, the Asian-American community more broadly, it has a set of customs, values, um, beliefs, traditions, practices, inclinations, psychologies, folk logics, wisdoms, that we could consider as wealth. And so that's how I understand it. And um, we are called to be stewards of that wealth, to be to use those things in kingdom ministry and um, not to withhold them from the God who gave them to us. We're supposed to return everything to this God who's granted us these things. And to be told by others that these gifts, this wealth is not worth uh, using in ministry, whether in direct or indirect ways, well, that makes it uh, really difficult for me to obey uh, the command to be stewards of the wealth that I've been given. Um, it's tantamount to me to putting an albatross around my neck in terms of uh, trying to do ministry faithfully. So um, we want to make sure that this the wealth that we know has been given to communities, including communities who have earned wealth through suffering. Right? We think about uh, the, uh, the Black community in, in the United States uh, suffering through Jim Crow. The kind of wealth that you get because of that, the resilience, the grit, um, the songs, the stories, especially of God's faithfulness, those are things to be stewarded carefully and leveraged for the sake of the kingdom. You all wrote, uh, properly understood the juxtaposition of the doctrine of original sin and the assertion that racism is ordinary, neither statement contradicts the preciousness and dignity of individual persons. Denial of either, on the other hand, works at the expense of those who suffer the effects of sin and racism. Robert, I don't know if you'll take us a little deeper there. Yeah. So, and, and this is Jeff's, I think, chapter, so I'll, I'll look forward to hearing what he has to say too, but it's interesting to me that um, when I am in certain Christian circles, people will be quick to recognize that sin affects our individual personal relationships. The way that I, you know, personal sin, if you will, right? Like I might, you know, if someone steals or cheats or has an affair or certain types of personal sins, people are quick to say, yeah, you know, like, you know, sinful human nature. But the second that I say, and that the school district right next to me has much less resources for the kids. They get funded like 50%. I'm just saying this like, you know, as, I'm not, this, I have the literal figure. But for me to say, the, there are school districts in the U.S. that get funded half as much, right, than schools in rich districts and, and, the, and the kids that live in those 
educational districts with much less funding also have less qualified teachers for the most, you know, in, in many cases, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And for me to say, that's a structural sin. God's not happy when certain kids have more opportunity to get education and live their fullest selves and the fullest expression of the image of God. If I say that, they'll say, no, that's not true. <laughs> or that's not a category of sin or something like that, or it's just not true. Even most of them don't go into, don't even use theological language. They just say, that's not true. Everybody's equal from a knee jerk reaction. So, so that, that would be kind of an example. And I'd love to hear Jeff. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Robert. I, I, I think when we wrote that, when I wrote that, um, I was thinking directly about the fear that people have in facing the reality of racism in the country. Um, we use the doctrine of original sin by saying, I did something bad and I need forgiveness. Um, and we, we talk about it in terms of this potential for all humans, the, the doctrine of original sin, uh, the potential for all humans to do something bad. But that's not how the doctrine is actually formulated in Christian theology. When we talk about our first parents, Adam and Eve, uh, falling from grace, um, we talk about it in a, a more, m way more ways than, than what we refer to in the book as sin as act, sin as act, the, the thing that I do. There's so many other ways that the Bible talks about sin that you can, you can think about in terms of an, an infection, um, a disease, a toxicity, something that really impacts us to the core, not just the things that we do. And what we want to do is think about racism in a similar way, because if racism is a sin in, in some category, um, and if sin can be more than just act, then racism can also be more than just act. And, and that's part of the difficulty when we talk about definitions of racism. People want to think that racism is something I do. Now, ironically, we <laughs> evangelical uh, believers in the United States tend to believe that justice is something that is. It's like a state of affairs. It's like a, a peace where things, bad things don't happen. That's, that's what justice is. But the Bible talks about justice as something you do. So there's a, a strange irony uh, going on here where racism isn't something I do. It's an attitude that I have. But j justice is just kind of like a state of being. In reality, it's both of these things. Racism can be something you do, but it can also be something that infects the entire system. And that is in no way um, a denigration or denial of the preciousness and the worth of the individual person. Um, so we want to make those declarations that Christian theology makes uh, and has made for centuries. Um, we might, we want to make those declarations too in our analysis of critical race theory so that we're all talking about the same thing here. You know, one of the, one of the wonderful aspects of the book is you're not just getting into kind of the head space of people, but you're also getting to the practical space of people and, you know, well-meaning white Christians, um, we'll start to use terminology like, um, you know, I just want the church to be colorblind. However, you argue that this undermines the positive uh, contributions of, of cultural diversity. Robert, I wonder if you'll take us a little deeper here. Sure. I think that the, the colorblind approach is an improvement <laughs> from like, say, 50 years ago, where it was like, people were not colorblind, very color conscious, but in, the, in, in a very bad way, right? We know that. So colorblindness, the move towards that, there's an improvement and there's biblical, there's a biblical truth to that, right? You know, um, neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, slave nor free in Christ, right? That's good. Yeah, we're all, we're all equal before Christ. That's fantastic, right? Or the inclination to say, yeah, I'm not going to be prejudiced against someone um, because of their, their skin color and so forth. Like, that's good. That's a good thing. And, and that captures some truth, but that's not the full biblical picture, right? Revelation 7, Revelation 5, you know, people of every tribe, language, nation, and tongue, right? Um, this concept of ethnicity and culture of eschatological value, right? Um, and Revelation 21, 26, which we discussed, um, <clears throat> that every ethnic group has God-given doxa, glory and honor, cultural treasure and wealth, 
And as the body of Christ, each of us a, a unique part, right? We bring that distinct doxa in the form of cultural treasure and, and cultural perspectives to the to the body of Christ. And and so colorblindness misses that, right? So for example, let me give an example. The church in the world right now, globally, as your listeners may know, where is it thriving? It's thriving in Africa, Asia, Latin America, among immigrants in the United States, the Black church, Native American church. Where is it not thriving? Unfortunately, and it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart, right? In Europe, in former kind of Western Christian sort of institutions in the US and Canada. And I'm devastated by that, right? But what is, can you imagine the doxa and the treasure and the wealth of perspective that can come from our sisters and brothers in Africa right now, in Asia and Latin America? They're not perfect by any means, right? But there's so much doxa. And I think God wants to use that doxa, right? To revive the whole church universal. Yeah, and, and I, I, you ask about colorblindness. I, I think we understand all the, all the pithy phrases that folks have used to express this value of colorblindness. I'll, I'll just give you one example. Um, we're all the same at the foot of the cross. We're all the same at the foot of the cross. You, you've probably heard that. It's this expression that, um, it, to emphasize the positive, it's that Jesus is exalted. And we a thousand percent affirm that Jesus is exalted and, and it relativizes everything else about us. But what it doesn't deny or obliterate in the way a colorblind ideology sometimes can is the real meaningfulness, the stewardship that I talked about in a minute ago, the, the community cultural wealth that Robert's highlighting in Revelation 21, that the authors of scripture themselves, like John's own revelation on the island of Patmos, is one in which he recognizes differences. Mm -hmm at the foot of the throne. So we can affirm both that at the foot of the cross, we are all equal, and that at the foot of the throne, John the Revelator sees every tribe, nation, and tongue discernibly different, and that that kind of diversity, that kind of anti-color blindness brings glory to God. I want to be careful with kind of setting up the next question, because I think it's it's easy for us as cooperative Baptists that are listening to this to detach ourselves from the legacy of the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, for the most part, most of us were part of that convention um, until 30 years ago, um, but our legacy exists there. And of course, that legacy stretches back to being a part of the American Baptist Convention and intentionally splitting away over the issue of, of racism. You, you tackled the SBC uh, in, in the book, um, and instead of me leading with a question, I, I wonder if you'll just kind of address <laughs> the aspects of, uh, of the SBC and as it relates to CRT. Oh, Andy, you want to walk us right into the, the controversy. So <laughs> I, 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 um, I was raised in a, um, an independent Chinese church in um, Oklahoma, and um, for folks who are familiar with that kind of um, genre of church, it's basically Southern Baptist. There's a lot of folks who are basically Southern Baptist in their orientation. But um, I want to be I want to be careful too, Andy, because um, I have so much fondness and love for uh, my SBC-ish roots, and certainly there's plenty of SBC colleagues and um, brothers and sisters who I count as you know um, fellow beloved. And I hope they count me that way too, that they accept my confession. Now, having made those kinds of caveats, um, there are real differences in our theologies that I think I'm pointing to. And what I'm trying to do there as an academic, as a theologian, is trying to say, like, you know, if you if you want to fight racism in all its forms, there are some formulations of theology that are really gonna help you, and that there are some that are gonna really hinder you a little bit. So I'll give you one example that I put in the book. I think the Southern Baptist emphasis on freedom of choice. In political theology, I'm, I'm going to point back to a kind of um, uh, classical liberal tradition in, in political philosophy, right? Like the emphasis on the individual freedoms of the person, the maximization of freedoms. 
when a, when someone is persuaded of that kind of libertarian freedom, their theology will reflect it. So the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 on humanity says, in the beginning, man was innocent of sin and was endowed by his creator with freedom of choice. There's a deliberate choice to call out that libertarian freedom in the SBC doctrinal formulation. I'm not denying that there's freedom of choice, but it leads to expressions of um, you know, the way they engage in the world, the way the, the way folks are supposed to engage in the world. So uh, I'll go on here, right? So in, in this um, portion on humanity, they say, by his free choice, man sinned against God and brought sin into the human race. And as soon as humans are capable of, quote unquote, moral action, they become transgressors and, and are under condemnation. So you, you see these resonances of the classical liberal tradition in this doctrinal formulation. Now, what does that all mean? Here, here's the impact. When you get to um, the Baptist faith and, faith and message on Christians and the social order, they talk about how it's only when an individual person is regenerated by the saving grace of God in Jesus Christ, it's then and only then that um, the things that they do for society and the establishment of righteousness is um, quote unquote, truly and permanently helpful. Now, if I'm reading this stuff and you're thinking, so yeah, what's wrong with that? What I want to tell you is that that's a particular way of viewing things, that it's individualistic, that it's privatized, it's libertarian in its philosophy, it's trying to maximize the freedom of the individual. And that, here's my modest claim, that's just not how everyone does theology. There are people who have communal views. There's people who think about sin in different ways. Um, and um, that's been true for the entirety of the Christian tradition. So these relatively recent innovations that privatize faith and talk about sin in um, individual terms and freedom of choice, these are the innovations in my mind. Um, and they, um, they reap a legacy of working on issues like race and racism that... Um, lack some of the tools that other theologies that are more communal bring to the table. Oh, Jeff, I thought you were going to say something controversial, but again, you're just, you know, dropping truth bombs uh, here, there, and, and everywhere. Th these are difficult conversations. Um, most people don't like difficult conversations. In fact, cognitive psychology has shown that when someone believes another person is trying to change their opinion on a matter, that person will only entrench themselves further into these ideas. Robert, so so how do we how do we talk about these things in the church? In First Corinthians, Paul says that we were supposed to you know suffer with with one another and give greater honor to the parts that lack it. Let me say as your fellow brother in Christ that there's a lot of suffering, a lot of lack of honor that is being experienced by your sisters and brothers in the United States of different ethnic backgrounds. So please hear us. We love you. I hope you love us. We need one another. We belong to each other. And I, I pray and hope that by hearing our stories and relationships, that we can come to greater understanding. And I will also say that these questions are not new. <laughs> these are the very questions <laughs> that John was addressing confronting in the book of Revelation. One theologian has called the book of Revelation John's multicultural crossing. <laughs> John, the Palestinian Jew, living among diasporic Jews <laughs> in Asia and seeing the Holy Spirit, Spirit bring to the church people of different ethnic backgrounds, Gentiles who had hitherto been excluded from the formal membership in the people of God. And John is like, how do I make sense of this? I don't, I'm not getting this. I'm not getting this, Lord. It's hard enough to, to understand Samaritans 
and even diasporic Jews, right? And now you're telling me all these other people are part of your people? And in, in response, I, I don't, I'm not even sure John fully understood, but he's like, but I see this vision of people of every tribe, language, nation, and tongue. And imagine for me, the differences of perspective among the nations that he envisioned, the tribes that he envisioned, the languages that they spoke, the, the perspectives that they would come to understand about who Christ was. And that, that's what we're saying fundamentally here. Not in a spirit of, of wanting to just like tear the church down. We love the church. And we want to rehearse what John has told us in the book of Revelation. Jeff, um, for local church pastors listening to this, um, you know, oftentimes I know there's a struggle um, because, you know, our false first impulse is to use the platform of the pulpit to speak out on these things, but that's not the only way for people to educate and do spiritual formation with their congregation when it comes to things like critical race theory. So I wonder if you have wisdom for how they can model the way to, to others. Yeah. And it's really difficult. And I, I'm, I'm not a, uh, uh, I'm, I'm ordained in the Christian reform church, but I don't have a congregation that I lead right now. And I just want to say, first of all, my heart goes out to pastors who are, uh, steering into the wind on this one. I mean, really it, it takes bravery. It takes, um, uh, it takes God's spirits leading and, and I'm praying, um, Lord, uh, please fill my brothers and sisters who are leading in congregations with your spirit. I mean, really? Um, so there's a couple things I want to say about that. I think the number of young people that I have watched leave the church um, is a an outcry. It's a clarion call to pastors to think and rethink pulpit ministry. There are so many folks sitting in the pews and ready to leave the pews or who have left the pews who, when racism rears its ugly head in local communities or around the country, they're waiting to hear not their political talking points, not their um, ideological dog whistles. That's not what they're waiting for. They're waiting to hear comfort from the pulpit. And I... I I'll be honest with you, as a seminary professor, as, you know, a, a student for so long, you know, I, I, I started uh, at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in 2007, and then I graduated from Fuller in 2017, 10 years, you know, of doing classes. Um, I, I, I don't know that seminary is where you learn how to pastor from the pulpit. I think there's a lot of ways in which you learn how to rightly divide God's word and um, preach it faithfully and skillfully and lots of tools for that. But how to have judgment about a divided congregation, that's really difficult. So I'm, I'm praying for wisdom, but I, I want to say that when you hear that clarion call, for those of you who have liberationist sensitivities, you know, I want to say to you, do not harden your heart. Because that is the very voice of the suffering Christ calling out to you to um, faithfully speak a prophetic word into a broken world. Um, now, having said that, you also know, you pastors listening, that when you do something like that, when you incline your ear towards the hurting folks in the congregation, there's other folks in the congregation who are going to perceive that you've, quote unquote, gone woke. And oh my gosh, that language, just, I, I can't believe I just said that, actually. <laughs> I don't typically talk that way, but I know that that's how riven, how divided congregations are, that once you mention the word racism, just the fact that our title has critical race theory in it is going to close some minds shut like a trap. And I want to appeal to the pastors who are steering into those winds. Prophetic words are really, really important. Prophetic words are needed with deep shepherding pastoral care. There is a way to run a diversity training or to preach from a pulpit that just further hardens and galvanizes people's opposition to righteousness and justice. 
there's a way of doing that. It, it's dogmatic, it's smug, it's yelling, it's, you know, all the things that you don't want to do. Um, there are other modes that some of our pastors are going to have to learn. You know, if, if you're primarily a preacher that uses the football coach ethos, let's go get it, you know, that kind of thing. Um, maybe you want to learn some other modes, some gentler modes, some coaxing, some prodding, some reasoning in the marketplace. Maybe not just the pulpit, but maybe also Sunday school. Um, because at the end of the day, I think we all know that in churches, many churches like ours, change moves at the speed of relationship. And it's building those relationships across race, across difference, and doing so for a long period of time. Um, that's what we know um, makes, makes enduring change. Our guests are Dr. Robert Chow Romero and Dr. Jeff Leo. The book is Christianity and Critical Race Theory. Gentlemen, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for challenging us to push past the impulse to give in to the culture wars and to faithfully bear witness to the love of God among our friends and neighbors. Thanks for hosting. Amen. Thank you, Andy. Hey, you're not going to want to fast forward because you want to hear about one of our annual sponsors, Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity. The Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity aims to equip, nurture, encourage, and support men and women for their best service in the kingdom of God. Offering several programs, including master's and doctoral levels, you'll be equipped and encouraged to discover the unique place where your faith reaches out to meet the needs of the world. Now enrolling for fall of 2023. For more information about Gardner-Webb Divinity Programs, scholarships, and grants, call 704-406-3205 and visit gardner-webb.edu. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcasts. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity, a model ministry, and Zondervan Media Company. Check out more at cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and more. And I'm not sure if we mentioned that you should join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.